Uh, we're, we're in the middle of a series uh, where we're looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we're trying to learn from Paul about how to be a church that's centered on Jesus. So we have two more weeks in this series, so it will coincide with us being in this space. We'll go through two more. Next week, we'll look at one of the uh, most famous passages in Galatians, and then the week after that, we'll actually do a learning exercise together to try to remember and uh, recapture all the different things that we've been learning in this series. Then when we move back into the chapel, we'll have about a seven-week series about rule of life, which is one of the important pieces of our church community that we're trying to build into the life of our church, where we ask about the, the practices that we have that help us to become more like Jesus. So we'll have lots of guest speakers coming to preach during that season, and just talking about different practices that they have in their lives to help them become like Jesus. And then in September, we'll pick back up in the rest of, of Galatians to talk more about what Paul uh, is, is talking about in being a centered church. So I've heard from several people that they've said, oh, I really like this series. It's very interesting, and I've been enjoying it a lot, which is great. And they, someone said to me this week, I, I understand that we don't want to be, or I understand what a fuzzy set church is, where nobody, everybody's okay, we don't confront everybody. I understand what a bounded set church is, where we create these boundaries to keep people inside and outside. And I understand that neither of those things work. But I'm trying to understand how we become, like, what does it actually look like to be a church that's centered on Jesus? How do we practice that? And if that's your question, and it's a great question to have, then this is a good week for you, because we're going to get very practical today in talking about uh, a practice that actually helps us to become a church centered on Jesus. So I'm going to introduce you to a model that's been in the Anabaptist tradition for a long time called the community hermeneutic that helps us to understand how we can follow Jesus together to be centered on him rather than fuzzy or bounded. So the community hermeneutic has three different parts to it, and we've talked about the first two already, but I'm going to reintroduce them to us uh, so that we can kind of capture how they work within the community hermeneutic. So the first uh, part is community. That when to understand what God's saying to us today and how he's guiding us past our disagreements to be focused on him, we have to have a community of people that are focused on following Jesus. And Paul has says this again and again, that our stories really matter. That grace for Paul is not just a concept or an idea, but grace always takes place within a story and within a community of people who are putting grace into their story. So fuzzy said churches, they take our stories and they put them right at the center of the community. And they say that your story is the most important. Your authenticity is the most important thing about you. And none of us can challenge that. Jesus can't challenge it either. A bounded said church oftentimes will, take, will be blind to how our stories play in. And so we think of ourselves more as like rational people that just think through the scriptures, read it, and, and have clarity, like scientific clarity about what it's saying. And so we're blind to actually how our stories, how our upbringings, how the trauma that we have, how the joys that we have, how the, our hopes and dreams actually play into how we see Jesus and one another. But a centered set community is one where our stories are very important, and we have to learn how to tell our stories, to understand where we're coming from, how to articulate them together. But, and we also have to be good listeners of other people's stories, to take time to listen to where you're coming from, how grace is taking place in your life, where you're, what story you're coming out of. But we also have to allow grace to take root in our stories. We don't let our stories move to the center of our community, but rather we put Jesus there. And that's what Paul has said. Jesus is at the center. His story is actually the one that we're all trying to live out of in our various lives, in our homes, in our workplaces. And Paul says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life of Christ is raised in me. And so you can see in this picture, community is one of the important pieces, but it's, it's not at the center. Our community and our stories isn't at the center of our community. Rather, it's Jesus that's there. 
So that's the first part. The second piece of a community hermeneutic is the Holy Spirit. And last week we talked about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is God's creative and empowering presence with us. And it brings up the storyline from Scripture that God actually wants to be with us. And if we think about what we think about when we think of God, this is not one of the things that first comes to our mind, but it's actually one of the oldest pieces, uh, parts of Scripture, or one of the oldest storylines that God actually really longs to be with us. He wants to be present with us. So what might be some evidence is that the Spirit is alive in our lives or is in the center of our community. We'll talk a lot more about this in the second half of our series, but um, I want to just take one passage to see how Paul describes this, a life indwelt with the Spirit in Romans 8. This is from the message. Paul writes, With his Spirit living in you, your body will be alive as Christ's, which is a very interesting way of saying it if you think about it, because how is Christ alive? He's died, and he's been raised again. This is the U-shaped life that we're invited to as followers of Jesus, that our lives will be alive like Christ. So then he talks about this old life that we had. He said, you, you, you don't, so you don't see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is give it a decent burial and get on with your new life because God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? This invitation to become like Jesus. We talked about this last week, that instead of settling for a middle-class Christian life, that we, we choose shining, to put Jesus in the middle and ask, what's next? How are you inviting us to become more like Jesus? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we're going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. So so, there's so much about this passage that we could talk about, and it is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. But uh, it explains a lot about what the Spirit does in our lives. So the Spirit confirms who we are that we're children of God. The Spirit gives us this great hope. The Spirit brings us alive and, and makes, puts inside of us this passionate drive to become more like Jesus. But what I want to zone in on, once again, is how the Spirit relates to Jesus. This passage and other passages in Scripture says that the Spirit is a gift that's made possible by Jesus. We have the Spirit because of Jesus. That the Spirit exists in us and in our community to glorify Jesus, to put him at the center The Spirit invites and enables us to become more like Jesus and ties us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the Spirit is the promise that we're fellow children with Jesus. And so the second part of the community hermeneutic is the Spirit. The Spirit's presence among us, enabling us and empowering us not to be put in the center, but to become like Jesus. And so it's tied to this person of Jesus to be Jesus-centered. So we've talked about these two things. Let's, Let's go to the third one which a third point of the triangle, which we're going to get back to our text now, which is a bit of a hint about where we're going. So we saw last week, uh, Galatians 3, chapter 1, Paul says, starts by saying, you foolish Galatians, you foolish Galatians. And then he goes on to give eight rapid-fire questions. And, and I'm just going to go to the last one. He says, so then, does God give you the Spirit? How did you receive the Spirit? And work miracles among you? Was it by doing works of the law? That's one option or by believing what you heard. And this is the, what we, the key of what we talked about last week. And of course, for the Galatian church, they're mostly not Jewish, so they didn't obey works of the law. 
but they did receive the Spirit. So Paul is just making a rhetorical question here. He's saying it's by believing what you heard that you received the Spirit. But here's how this passage ends. He says, so did you receive the Spirit by doing works of the law, or is it by believing what you heard? And then it says, just like Abraham who believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So to emphasize his point, Paul is going back to the Hebrew Scriptures, to his people and their story. And he says, you Galatians, you're in the people of God. You've received the Spirit of God, and you've done that not by works, but by believing, by putting your relational trust in Jesus, by putting him at the center of the community. And Paul now is going to say, that, but that's, that's just not you. That's actually always been true of the people of God. And in, in the next chapter and a half, Paul will do this four different ways, where he'll go reference back to the Hebrew story, the Hebrew scriptures, and he'll say this has actually always been true, that it's been by faith and not by works of the law. And this is the third part of the triangle for us, that God's story, the scripture, the Bible is, is part of how we understand and discern God's will in our lives and how he's leading and guiding us as a community. So let's take a look at how Paul uses the scripture in these passages uh, in order for us to understand, and, and with the Galatian church, in order for us to understand how he might be guiding us to use the scriptures today. So the first thing we need to do is understand what Paul is talking about when he uses this word or this phrase, works of the law. So he's referring back to the law that was given to Moses at Sinai. So if you know the story of Scripture, so there's the, the first book is called Genesis. We have some stories of different people. So Adam and Eve, and we've got people, uh, uh, Abraham comes shortly after that. And then we've got um, Joseph, Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, if you know that story. Then the next book is the story of Exodus. And that starts with the life of Moses. So God's people are enslaved. Moses is called to lead them out. And then when they're in the desert, they meet God on this mountain, Sinai, and God gives them the law, these 613 different laws that's supposed to rule and guide how they live their life. So there was a time before they received the law where there was no law. And, but that's not how the Jewish people looked at the law for themselves. So the first thing that we have to understand is that for, for first century Jewish people, the law was an eternal thing. It's something that always existed. And let me give you one example of how they rationalized this. If you know the Ten Commandments was kind of like the, the center of the law, one of the commandments is about the Sabbath. So remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So that was given at a very specific point in time in the Jewish story. But Jewish people would say, but that's actually always been true. So if you read the creation narratives, you'll see that God creates in the Genesis 1 narrative in seven days. And there it says that he rested on the seventh, the seventh day, the Sabbath, and therefore it's holy. And so Jewish people would say, well, the, the law was given at a specific point in time, but it's actually eternal. It stretches in both directions forever. So the idea and way of thinking about it is if God is eternal, God gives the law, then the law is also eternal. It's just a, what happened at Sinai is actually a formalization of the law. But it's always been around. And people who have uh, followed God, God's people, have always obeyed God's law. So Abraham came, and this is who Paul is referencing, he came before Moses. But they would say Abraham actually obeyed the law as well. And there are many stories, especially in the extra-biblical literature, of Abraham turning from idols to worship the one excuse me, the one true God. So they would say the law was written on his heart. So the law is eternal. It stretches in both directions. It will be there for all time. The second thing that we need to understand is that the law was for everybody. 
So maybe Jewish people are the only ones who obey it, the only ones who acknowledge it, but they would think the law is for every person. It's not a tribal or a national law. It's for every person of all time. Again, the rationalization here is if God is not just the God of the Jewish people, but he's the God of everybody, then this law applies everywhere. So that's the second thing. The third thing is that the law was a frame for all of life. Now, we may think if you've ever had the wonderful joy of reading through the law, those parts, if you do a Bible year, uh, reading the Bible in a year, you get through Genesis and you're like, I'm okay. Exodus, I'm okay. And then you hit the law and you're just like, ah, it's like two and a half books of just rules. Not a lot of fun. But um, the, the point is, it's not just rules that, that we think of like in our lives where, you know, there's lots of rules that govern our society. I don't ever think about them on a daily basis. Um, but for, for those people at that time, it framed all of life. The law framed all of your life, all of your relationships, how we function as a society, who is honored and who is not. It shaped all of reality. So that's the third thing we need to understand. And then finally, that keeping the law is the path to becoming a righteous and justified person, to becoming someone who's honored within the society. And so when Paul says works of the law, he's referencing all of these things. It's an all-encompassing, eternal uh, law for all people that governs all of reality. Now, Paul is a Jew, but for Paul, something has happened. So instead of the law being at the center of his life and his community, he has met the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And he's saying, now Jesus is at the center of my life. He's, he's taken the law and he's receded it. He's moved it out of that central place. So let's, what did the Messiah do? Let's take a look at just the first passage where Paul is referring back to his people's story. Uh, chapter 3, verse 5 to 14. It'll be up on the screen. Paul says, so then, does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know that then, that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under the curse, because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it's written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham could come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. So a bit of a dense passage. We're not going to read all of them, and you can kind of see why. Um, But I want to just summarize what I think Paul is saying here. He's taking one of the oldest storylines of the Bible, this vision of blessing and curse, that there's two ways to live, that God is a God who wants to give us blessing, and that's to be in his presence, that we're with him, And he blesses us by his presence. And it's really important for us to remember that in the Bible, blessing is always a twofold thing. That we are blessed, but we're always blessed to be a blessing. That the blessing flows through us out into the world. Like Mitch was talking about this morning, that we are here not just for ourselves, but for the city to bless others. So it's not like Chance the Rapper blessing, you know, where it's just falling in my lap. It's all for me. That's not the point of it. It comes to me in order to bless other people. But what happens is, if we're not in step with God, if we're not living with him, then we are, what the Bible says, is cursed. We're away from the presence of God and all the benefits and and good that comes with him. And so the goal is to figure out how can we be blessed so we can be blessing to the world and not cursed. 
So Paul is saying, or for a first century Jewish person, they would say this, the way to be blessed is to obey the works of the law. That's the way that you're blessed. But Paul is saying in this passage, no, it's actually by faith. It's by putting God at the center of your world and your relational commitment towards him. And he says something crazy in this passage, that that's always been true. That's always been the way that it it has been, that Abraham lived by faith and not by the law, and that's the way that we're supposed to live. So the path to blessing is actually through relational commitment to God. But the second thing that he says that's crazy is he says, actually relying on the works of the law will bring you curse, which is the exact opposite of what a first century Jewish person would think. He says, if you want to obey the law, then you have to do absolutely everything in the law. And he's quoting a passage there from Deuteronomy 27. So if you try to obey the law, you'll actually become cursed instead. And then he finishes off with this hammer, that Jesus, the only righteous one, actually took a curse on, that he came under the law and was cursed by hanging on the tree in order that we would not be cursed, but that we could receive the blessing and that the nations could be blessed through the life of Jesus. Now, this is kind of boilerplate Christianity stuff. But for a first century Jewish person, this is absolutely mind-blowing because Paul is saying that this thing that, that you and I have made eternal, that it's the center of our world, it's for all people for all time, that's the way that we run our entire world and view reality, that this thing actually has been relativized by Jesus. That in Jesus coming, he has now fulfilled the law and he has put himself at the center of our community. And this law that that is so important to us in the way that we live our lives. And for Paul, the way that he's given his entire life up until this point in time, he says now that that's changed, that Jesus is in the middle. And so he he says in the letter to the Galatians, you can live Jewishly or not. It doesn't really matter as long as it's not going to break fellowship with the community of God, the other people who want to put Jesus at the center. And so he says, you can eat kosher or you cannot eat kosher, but don't let it break table fellowship with other followers of Jesus. And Paul will say later, circumcision or uncircumcision, actually they mean nothing. One of the most important boundary markers of the Jewish law. What matters is a new creation that's happening through the Messiah, Jesus. Okay, so that's, this is not our context. I'm trying to explain what Paul is saying. But let me try now to just talk about what this might mean in our context, because we're happening 2,000 years later in a very different social context. So first, I think the thing that Paul is saying is that Jesus has to change how we read the Bible, how we read our scriptures. So many of us read the scriptures in this type of way. Uh, this is a poor, uh, poor rendering, but let's see it. We read the scriptures as if they're flat, as if all of it's equal. And so there's a couple different ways to do that. Some of us read the, uh, the Bible uh, as if we just choose different parts that we like and ignore different parts that we don't. So how many of us have read the law this week? Show of hands. All right, none. That's what I thought. So we're just not going to go there. It's not an interesting part for us, right? And so we just pick and choose. Like, yeah, some of the Psalms, those are pretty great. You know, Jesus' life, that's okay. Genesis, all right. But then we're like probably not reading Revelation weekly, you know, because we're just choosing different sections that we like and we don't like. And some of us, we go to the scripture and what we do is we try to take every single book, every single piece and every single place and we'll ask a question. So we'll come and say, how should I live in this area of my life? And it becomes really, really confusing if you've ever tried to do that because the Bible seems to be saying a lot of different things. And we have to remember that the Bible is not a book, but it's actually a library of books. There's 66 different books written and edited by multiple different communities, 12 or so different genres of literature, three different languages, 
composed over a thousand years, two millennia ago. And so when we come to it with a specific question and we're asking to reduce it down into its smallest components, what does the Bible say about faith? It's a very hard thing to do. And what we end up doing in that scenario is we end up building another boundary, saying this is what faith is and this is what faith isn't. And we're asking, I think, the wrong question. Because Paul, in this passage that we just read, and in many others, he seems to be looking at Scripture in a different way, that Jesus is actually the climax He's the high point of Scripture, and that we are to read everything through the life and the person of Jesus. And this is the same thing that other New Testament writers did. Listen to Hebrews 1, what it says. Long ago, God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets in different times and in different ways. So God has spoken through Scripture. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us, if we want to know what God's glory looks like, we need to look at Jesus. If we want to know what God looks like, we need to look at Jesus. If we want to know what it means to be truly human, we look at Jesus. He's the center point of our understanding of scripture and everything about God. So instead of of reading it in a flat way, what the Bible needs to become is this place where we, you want to go to the next slide, where we actually see Jesus at the center of the story. And then it invites us to read Scripture differently. So the New Testament, we read the second half of Scripture as a pointing back to Jesus, that we're always trying to understand what the writers are saying as they point back to Jesus into a specific context. That's what they're doing. Paul is writing, and he's trying to take the Galatian church and say, the life of Christ, this dying and rising life that is Christ, how can we make that true in our small community in Galatia? And so um, th- this is what Paul is doing again and again. When he confronts Peter in Antioch, that's what he says to him. You're living out of line with our true story that's centered on Jesus. And so we read Scripture backwards towards Jesus, the New Testament. But the Hebrew Scriptures we need to read in two different ways, or what we often call the Old Testament. So the first is that we need to read Jesus backwards into the Scripture. So we already looked at one of the passages where Paul does this. There's three more, but I'm only just going to mention two because they're quite tedious. They're interesting if you want to talk about them. I did lots of research on them. I find them fascinating, but they don't make for super great preaching, I found. So um, I'll just summarize what Paul is saying in the two passages. So in the next passages, uh, chapter 3, verse 15 to 18, Paul summarizes and he says, God has made a covenant with his people, with Abraham. Again, Abraham comes before the law, and this covenant is that he will bless the people of Abraham, and they will become a blessing to the world. But this blessing came before the law. That's what Paul is trying to say. And then there's this really interesting passage where he says, it came to Abraham and his seed. It doesn't say seeds. It says seed. And so Paul says that seed is actually not the people of Israel. It is Jesus Christ. And so to be included in the people of God is not based on the law, but the promise. See, I told you, slightly tedious. Slightly interesting. Okay, then in chapter 4, he talks about two covenants that were made, and he talks about uh, two people in the story of God again, Hagar and Sarah. And he says there's two covenants. There's a covenant of slavery and a covenant of freedom. And Jesus has brought us from the covenant of slavery into the covenant of freedom, out from underneath Hagar into Sarah. So for us, we don't get these references at all because we're not familiar with the story of God, or at least it's not our story, and we tend to read the Bible pretty devotionally. 
which if you want to think about what that is, I think of it this way. It's like, what can I get that might, what, what, what passage here might be good for getting a tattoo? Um, that's what I think of. And none of these passages have anything in them that would make good tattoos. Let me just read one, one passage for you. Galatians 4.25. Now Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Even if you get that one in Greek on you, I don't think it's going to look very good. It's not going to make sense. So when we read these passages, we're like, ah, like whatever. I don't really get it. Sounds good, Paul. I don't really, doesn't matter to me. But if we're reading and remembering back into his situation, a first century Jewish person listening to Paul, their ears are going to perk up. We go to sleep. Their ears are perking up because this is their story. They're very familiar. And second of all, they would say to Paul, that's not what those passages mean at all. Like you're taking some minuscule little thing and you're completely reinterpreting it. Like you're taking this one like letter instead of saying seeds, it's seed. And you're making this a whole theology about Jesus. And Jew- Jewish interpreters throughout the centuries have said like Paul is actually doing terrible exegesis here. He's doing super shoddy work. That's not what these passages mean. And this is important to us for two reasons. I have definitely thought this in my mind. I don't know if you've ever thought it before. Why don't Jewish people just get it? Like, it just seems so simple if you read the Old Testament scriptures, and then it's like, Jesus, yeah, it totally makes sense. But it doesn't, actually. These are not obvious scriptures that that Paul is choosing here. They're very opaque references. And what Paul is saying is the same thing we've been saying in this whole story, is that you Uh, Paul is reading Jesus back. He's met the risen Jesus, and that's changed his life. It's changed the way that he reads his scriptures. And he's saying this, it's only when you've experienced the gift of the the dead and resurrected Jesus that you can actually go back and understand these scriptures in this way. If you haven't, of course, you're not going to see it that way. But that's uh, the second thing we need to notice is what Paul is doing and what that invites us to do as well. Because Jesus doesn't treat the Old Testament scriptures all the same way. He does different things with different passages. So if we're going to read in a Jesus-centered way, we need to look back, we need to look at Jesus and see what he does with the Old Testament scriptures. There are some things that Jesus amplifies. So he actually takes them and he turns them up. So Jesus continually again and again in his ministry says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is what it means to be a person that has faith in God. And so he takes that. That is from the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew story, and he amplifies it. He says it again and again. And so he's carrying that storyline through into his life and into our lives, that it is something we need to hear. But there are other things that Jesus overturns from the Hebrew scriptures. Let me give you one from um, Matthew 5. It says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So love those people who are in your community, who are following the law, who are doing works of the law, who are righteous people, but don't love those who are outside. But Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus actually overturns this from the Hebrew Scriptures. So we need to pay attention to what he's doing. Some things from the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus radicalizes. Here, listen to another one. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's taking a a rule, a law, that was at about three, and he's turning it up to 11. He's saying, this is actually what it looks like to walk in step with me. And then there's certain things that Jesus ignores from the Hebrew Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures are obsessed, for example, with setting up a a nation-state, a theocracy, a place that's a 
group of people focused on God that's set up as a nation. But Jesus, when people continually try to come and give him power, he says, no, this kingdom is not my kingdom. This is not the way that I'm going to take power. It's by taking political power in the world. And unfortunately, what Christians have done throughout history, especially in Christendom, is they are like, oh, Jesus doesn't seem to talk a lot about what we should do about capital punishment in Canada. So let's go read back to the Hebrew scriptures. And that, I would say, is not Jesus-centered reading. Jesus doesn't seem interested in that at all. He ignores some things, and so we need to be very, very careful and read through. So we have to take our cues from Jesus when we read the Hebrew scriptures. When we're reading backwards, we're reading through the lens of Jesus. But the second direction that we need to do is reading the Old Testament forward to Jesus, the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus says this uh, in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus after he meets these disciples. He says, uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. The Bible Project, which is a great resource if you want some fun videos on YouTube, it says this, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so Jesus comes into our world and into the story of, uh, through the story of the Bible. Jesus is not a 21st century man or woman. He was an ancient Jew, and he's coming in through an ancient story. And we have to understand that story if we want to understand who Jesus is. And there's lots of great resources if you're interested in doing more of that. And so we read in these three directions. We read the New Testament back towards Jesus, and we look at who Jesus is and who, for example, Paul is trying to focus on the person of Jesus in the place of Galatia. And then we read the Hebrew scriptures in two different directions. We read them through the lens of Jesus, and we watch very carefully where Jesus, what Jesus is doing with different parts of the Hebrew scriptures. And then we also read the story to make sense of who Jesus is. So this is our community hermeneutic. It gives us this picture that we have the community and the spirit and scripture, and again, we do them all focused on the person of Jesus. And different communities will do, uh, they have these different parts in them, but sometimes they put things, different things in the middle. So sometimes we put our stories in the middle, like I said. That will make us a fuzzy church. Sometimes we put experience and spirit in the middle. That can also be a dangerous experiment. We, we leave scripture aside. Or we can put, maybe even part of a community like this that tries to put scripture in the middle. That's a very noble thing to do, to raise the voice of God. But what we're called to do is actually read scripture in a certain way through the lens of Jesus. And what we've seen in this series is that for Paul, scripture matters. But so does spirits, our experience of Jesus and the community, each of our stories, that that's where grace takes place. But it's all focused in and around the person of Jesus. So before I end with our last point, I want to get real practical and put this together. How do we actually use, how could we use, maybe would be a better way of saying it, something like this community hermeneutic? Well, let me just give you a non-controversial example of something that's just happened. In our neighboring country to the south, like Voldemort, we won't say uh, its name, um, there was a controversial thing that just happened this week where Roe v. Wade, abortion law, was overturned federally. Now, I bet you in this community, that there are mixed reactions to that. And that might cause some eyebrow raising for some of us. Because depending on what side you're on, you might say, I can't believe there would be people on the other side of that debate in a community of people that's focused on Jesus. And because of our polarization in our world, that doesn't sound like a great conversation for us to be having. It's like, where do you land on this issue? Especially, it does come across often as an issue. 
So what do we do? Well, this is our, in, in our world, one of the options is to get on social media and write like a really long rant that nobody will read. And then you'll find out who your friends are and who thinks like you, and you'll find out very quickly who doesn't. That's one option, the way that we do uh, make, make claims about these things in our world. In a fuzzy set church, what we could do is we could just ignore that we have differences. Yeah, you do you. That person, they might disagree with me on this very important issue. But that's okay. We're not going to confront. We're not going to talk about it. We're just going to leave it to the side. A bounded set church would take this issue and we would say this is what it means to follow Jesus. And, and in our history of our church, what that probably would mean was I'd say it from the front and then we would go immediately and write it on our website. This is what we believe about this issue. In the past, I think uh, we had hundreds of pages of issues that we believed in. There was one about what we believed about ethical coffee, a uh, very important topic. Um, well, that's bounded set church, but a centered set church does it in a different way. First, we come together. That's the most important thing. Rather than pushing apart, we actually choose to come together, and we learn to tell and listen to stories. We learn to listen to one another, and there's three questions that we don't want to ask. The first is this. Am I open to telling my story? Am I open to telling where I come from on this? And it's not so much what do I think, but what do I feel? Remember what Paul has said in the past? That Peter was mobilized by fear. Where am I afraid? One of my friends who does community hermeneutic, he says, what you need, the question you need to ask is, I remember when. I remember a time when in my own life. So I'm, t- I'm telling you this through my own life. And as we listen to each other's stories, I bet you will open up lots of space to have conversation. Maybe some people in this community have had abortions or have friends who do. Maybe somebody who had a botched abortion died that you know. Or maybe you, for example, were a child who was going to be aborted. That's going to change how you come to the issue, to bring your story, to bring your whole self to the community. So am I open to telling my story? And the second is this, am I open to listening to the stories of other people? That you are going to come to this differently than me. If you are a female, for example, you're probably going to approach this slightly different than I am going to approach it. Am I open to listening to the stories of other folks? And then the third is this. Am I open to not having my story be sitting at the center, but to Jesus being sitting at the center, which means that I'm open to actually changing, that the, the, the goal of all of this is actually that the life of Christ would shine through my life and our life as a community. So we ask that question. We, we tell our stories. The second thing is we open up God's word. And we read together to allow Jesus' life to shine through and for grace to shape our lives. And maybe we'll come to a place in Scripture where it looks like all throughout Scripture and through the life of Jesus, he holds the same line. And there's no wiggle room. And so we should, as followers of Jesus, we're invited to be kind of on one side of the issue. But there's, um, there's other ways of looking at it as well. And, and here's one thing I would say, for example, on this specific issue. One thing I think Jesus says to us on this, what, if you're on one side of the debate, you're uh, like pro-abortion, is that Jesus will come and he'll say to people again and again that your rights are not the most important thing. If you're part of the family of God, I'm not talking about people out there, I'm talking about us in here, that your rights actually aren't the most important thing. Because Jesus takes the path for us of giving up his rights and giving up his life and his body. And can that challenge you? Can that story challenge you if that's the thing that's most important to you? Or if you're on the other side of the issue and you're thinking, like, I have to advocate for this politically. It's the most important thing I could do. You know, Jesus continually again and again walks away from political power and political discussion. Can that challenge you and shape who you think that you are?
And so we come together and we read God's word in a Jesus-centered way, and then we ask the Spirit as a community to help us walk in truth. How can we not only come to an idea about this, but live out faithfully what God is calling us to do as a community of people? And that's a rough sketch of what this could look like. And you, some of you might think, that as I talk to people about this, this is the general feedback that I get. They're like, that sounds like really interesting, but I don't know if it could work. It also sounds scary, and it sounds really difficult. And I think that it is. And in order for this to have any chance of going on, we'd have to extend an amazing amount of trust to one another. We'd have to be very vulnerable with each other. We'd have to take time to have these conversations And we have to have courage, not just to get in our echo chambers online, but actually to meet real people who might disagree with you, who are coming from very different stories, and open up God's word with them together. But to me, there are just two more important questions that we're going to end here of of where, uh, that are key to making this work for us, to being a community that is focused on Jesus and not on our own stories and echo chambers. The first is this, do we know Jesus? Do we actually know who Jesus is? What most of us do is we take our own opinions and our beliefs and we put them onto Jesus. But do you actually know him? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he said and what he didn't say? Do you know how he looked at people? Do you know the story that he came out of? Do you know what he cares about? What motivates him? His hopes. And that's why in our community, at the beginning of every year, we come together and we come around the story of Jesus and we study a gospel together because we need to know who Jesus is. It's so easy for us to clone stamp our own values, our own thought, our own person onto Jesus. But we need to put, if we're going to be a Jesus-centered church, we actually have to know him. And the second thing is this, is our Jesus big enough? Is he big enough? Is he big enough to challenge our assumptions? Is he big enough for me to relativize my own story, to put his in the middle? Is he big enough to cause me to do something very unpopular with my peers? to choose God's people and his story over it. You know, Paul, in in these passages, and in the book of Galatians in general, he focuses a lot on the death of Jesus uh, in a way that makes me personally uncomfortable, to be honest. I I prefer resurrected Jesus. Maybe you're like Ricky Bobby and you like baby Jesus. I don't know where you're at with that. I like resurrected Jesus. You know, he's up there. There's no controversy around that. Uh, Crucified Jesus, sometimes a little confusing, a little bit of controversy, but Paul doesn't let us squirm out from under it. Listen to what he says, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Verse 13, Christ became a curse for us by hanging on the tree. Chapter 6, verse 14, I will never boast about anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. And I've been thinking as I've been reading through again and again the letter to the Galatians, why? Why this focus on the crucified Jesus for Paul all the time in the letter to the Galatians? And I think one reason, I don't know of all of them, is that... Um, When it comes to the challenge of being a centered, set community, not taking the the route of being bounded again and the clarity that comes with that and the certainty of it, or to go to a place of being a polite Canadian church where we never confront each other and we're just fuzzy. When it comes to this challenge, when it comes to places where God is asking us to unclench our fists around the things that we hold so dear and open them up to the Spirit and to other people, Paul wants to remind us that we're not the first people to go to that place. That the first person to go there, the person that we follow, is the person of Jesus. That he gave everything up, being in very equality with God, 
and he opened his hands and he went to the cross, the place of humility, the place of vulnerability, in order that we might be included into the family of God. Paul says in another place that that's foolishness to the rest of the world. But to those of us who meet the dead and risen Jesus, this becomes our life. This becomes our hope. This becomes the center of who we are as a family. So will you take that Jesus and put him in the center to know him and to make him big in our community? Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you have gone first. You've called us to be people who unclench our hands, to open our hearts to you and to one another, but you have done that first for us. So I pray that as we respond now in, in musical worship, that as we sing words about you, that these would become more than words, but they would become anthems in our heart, and that you would become big, big in our lives, big in our minds, uh, big in our community as we sing these songs together. As we practice giving, um, and I think especially as inflation rises and we all get nervous and, and our attempt or our, our, our reaction is to, to clench our hands once again around what we have to hold it tight, I pray that you would teach us your way to open our hands to you, to open our hands to trust you and to see that you have gone there first by giving of yourself. And as we take communion together, as we practice uh, this, this practice of remembering that you have died, that you have gone first, as we take the juice and the cracker into our bodies, would this become our story? May you, be, you become big in each of our lives, we pray, and in our community. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.